Hello and welcome back to the Tez News Podcast. I'm Tez Podcast Producer Joshua Morris. It's been a couple of weeks, but we now return to normal programming. I hope you all enjoyed your Easter break. Later in the episode, I'll be talking to Tez Senior Editor Dan Worth about positive stats in the percentage of BAME applicants for initial teacher training and what more can be done to maintain that positive trend and retain some of those teachers. But first, I'm joined by reporter Callum Mason. Callum, welcome back. You have a good Easter? Yeah, I did. Thanks, Josh. Feels feels like a, a while since we've done one of these, doesn't it? Um, it does. It does. Yeah, but it's good to be back. So today we're going to be talking about a couple of stories here, and the first of which is a continuation of probably the biggest story before the Easter break, which was, of course, the school's white paper. Specifically, we're going to look at some comments from Education Secretary Nadim Zahawi. So Callum, a big cornerstone of the paper is the role of maths going forward and that all schools should be in one or on their way to becoming one by 2030. Now, he was asked about how offset inspections would fit into that picture and was also quizzed about councils running maths. So what did he have to say on those issues? Yeah, so as you say, um, a central part of the white paper is about having all schools in or on, on the way to joining multi-academy trust and Matt by 2030. Um, and I think a, a part of that that there's been some questions about is that Ofsted at the moment doesn't have powers to be able to inspect a mat. They inspect schools, obviously, but they can't look at the trust of schools, the, the sort of body, the family of schools as a whole. Um, and I think what... What was said um, in this in this committee hearing was that the role of Ofsted inspections uh, and how they inspect mats is going to be part of the government's review into how they regulate trusts. Um, so it was Zahawi, but it was also a director general at the at the DFE that was speaking at the at the committee. And basically, the, the director general uh, Andrew McCulley was saying that they're going to carry out a complete regulatory review uh, of the framework for mats. Uh, and that the role of inspection, the role of Ofsted, is going to be a massive part of this. Um, but to start off, they've got to establish what the basis for what being a strong trust, a good trust, looks like. Um, and once they have this basis, then then they can look at Ofsted and the role of inspection. But they need something to to look at what they're going to measure that against, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. And so uh, what about councils running mats? What did you have to say about that? Yeah, so in the in the white paper, there's a line about councils running maps. Um, so at the moment, if you're a local authority or a council, you can't set up a multi-academy trust. Um, there's local authorities that run maintained schools, but they, they can't run trusts as such. Um, but in the white paper, um, there was a line which said that local authorities would be able to establish new trusts where too few strong trusts exist. Um, and he was asked about this in, in the committee hearing. Um, he was asked if he basically if he was open to councils running maps in areas where there are already strong trusts, because I think there's been some concerns before from heads leaders that look if if they can if if local authorities can only set up trusts in areas where they, the strong trusts don't exist, then local authorities will become sort of the trust of last resort. They'll only only be able to set up a trust in in an area where they don't exist, so that they'll end up having to sweep up schools. Um, but but the education secretary said at the at the committee that he was quite open minded. Actually, um, he said okay. that if if trust think if um, local authorities think they can set up a trust and do it well, um, then they work with them to iron that out. So I think it seemed slightly at odds with what was actually said in the white paper. So it'd be very interesting to see over the next few weeks and months how that develops. 
um, and what what opportunities there will be for local authorities to set up trusts. And, and we'll be following that on the news team at TES uh, and trying to find out what the plans are for local authorities to set them up. Um, as part of a follow-up to this as well, the, the chair of the Education Committee, Robert Halfen, um, he was sort of asking, what's the point of a local authority setting up a trust? Um, if if you take in... Local authorities obviously already run some schools, maintain schools. Um, he was saying, what's the point of moving schools from being maintained by a local authority into a trust that's then run by a local authority? Um, and t- to be quite honest, when I heard the Education Secretary's answer, I wasn't entirely clear. Um, I don't think he he really gave a, a very strong, compelling argument for it. He said... His motivation for allowing local authorities to set trusts up was a fairness argument. He said county councillors had previously said, um, why are they not allowed to set up trusts? And he said, so he, he allowed them to in the white paper, which I think is, is a fair point, but I don't think it sort of addresses the crux of, of what Mr. Halfon was saying, which is why what, what would be the difference from them running a maintained school to them, to them running a trust, if you get what I mean. Yeah, well, hopefully there's some more clarity on that soon. So there was also a somewhat controversial decision uh, in the white paper, which is that, that we're not going to be publishing secondary league tables this year amid the, all of the COVID disruption. Now, Nadim Zahari was keen to stress that, that this wouldn't lead to any finger pointing. And it was more about finding out where resource and support is needed, right? Yeah, absolutely. So he was asked why they would be publishing the, the tables. And he, he was quite clear that he said he thought data transparency are very important. Um, but he was also clear that the framing of this was important as well. So his decision was basically that it's better to publish it, but frame in a way that, that points out that it's been a very difficult period um, and it's not about the tables aren't being being published for finger-pointing purposes, like you say. Uh, it's more about having that transparency um, and that data available. Um, so that was his answer on that, really. And finally then, uh, it's onto the idea that the white paper has largely overlooked the importance of skills in favour of a knowledge-rich curriculum. And there was a great quote from Robert Halfen, I believe, that was that the ghost of Nick Gibb appears to still be stalking the halls of the DFE. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think I think Robert Halfen probably enjoyed, enjoyed delivering that. Um, it's going to be a bit of a legendary quote that I think in education circles. Um yeah, so Robert Halfon was asking, basically, he said there seemed to be, he said that the white paper seemed to land on one side of the knowledge-rich versus skills sort of debate. Um, he said, your white paper seems to be on one side of the equation, meaning it seems to be on the knowledge-rich side. And he said that he acknowledged that while skills was was mentioned, it was very much in the post-16 um, sort of area. In pre-16, he said, why are we not focusing more on things like financial education, uh, careers education, things like that. And he said he, he thought these should be embedded in the school in the school system. Uh, the education secretary said he basically disagreed um, with the characterization of the white paper. Um, but there was a bit of back and forth between the two. And that's when um, Robert Halfon sort of delivered this ghost of Nick Gibb um, comment. So, so Nick Gibb, of course, served as schools minister for most of the last decade. Um, and he, was, he regularly sort of championed this knowledge-rich curriculum, um, which has, amongst some teachers, been, been a little controversial. So we touched on maths a bit earlier, and that kind of leads us on nicely to our second story, which is that grammar schools are looking into kind of the possibility of forming grammar-only maths. Now, I think part of the idea 
of the focus on maths was to bring grammar schools into that and kind of share their ethos with the other schools. I think Nadim Zahawi said that grammar school DNA should be spread in the system. So why are grammar schools trying to kind of pull away from that? Yeah, so that, that's right. At the launch of the white paper, um, Nadim Zahawi was asked about what the sort of position, what the role of grammar schools would be in this in this trust system. And he said he absolutely loved the ethos of grammar schools, he said, um, and he wanted them to, to spread their DNA, implying that he wanted them to set up multi-academy trusts or, or be part of multi-academy trusts with, with other schools, schools that aren't grammar schools. Um, and we've spoken to the, the Grammar School Heads Association and they've said that there are discussions going on at the moment nothing concrete in place, but there are talks about grammar schools forming local clusters um, of, of schools within a trust with other selective schools. And the reason for this is that they're concerned that their, their ethos, I guess, their, their selective nature could be a threat if they join a trust where there are lots of non-selective schools. Um, it's not clear exactly what direction this is going to take, but I think what the grammar schools were after is a reassurance that their selective their selective nature won't be under threat um, mm. by the by the math system if they join in maths with with other with other non-selective schools. Um, at the moment, most are in in single school trusts, so they're in trust with just themselves. Um, so they they have like autonomy. Um, it's been met with this this story running this as an exclusive um, on Thursday, and it's it's been met with a it's been it's been a little bit controversial um mm. the education policy institute uh, said that it was quite disappointing that grammar schools were were planning on making trust with just themselves um, and they said it should be this opportunity for schools to join mats grammars should be seeing this, seeing this as an opportunity to sort of collaborate with with non-selective schools but it's another story that we've we've got to follow we've got to see how it how it pans out um and also if the dfe respond and say no, no, we, we can offer these reassurances because I think that's what the, the schools are looking for. Yeah, it feels almost like, um, you know, some posturing in a business deal, you know, like here's, here's what we, here's what we're going to do unless you, unless you give us these reassurances. Yeah, quite possibly. Yeah. Um, I guess they've sort of, the grammar schools have laid their cards on the table and it's sort of like maybe the ball is in the DFE's court to, to respond. And so mm. one to watch for sure. Yeah, well, thank you again for joining me again this week. It's been good to have you back. It's been good to be doing the, the podcast as usual again. Thanks, Gun. Yeah, good stuff. Thanks very much. Initial teacher training data suggests that diversity within teaching is slowly improving, with the number of teachers identifying as BAME improving every year for the past six years. However, there are still significant problems. There are lower numbers for BAME applicants being successful, more BAME teachers lead the profession than other groups, and fewer BAME teachers make it to leadership positions than other groups. Senior Editor Dan Worth is back with me today to discuss why that might be. Dan, welcome back. It's been a while. Did you have a good Easter break? I did, yes. I moved house, which was um, fun, stressful. A lot yeah. of boxes, still a lot of boxes in the house, but yeah, that was all good. So yeah, great to be back though. Been a while since we've been doing the podcast, so I'm pleased to be here. It has, yeah, it has. Maybe, maybe not quite the break uh, everybody else might have had there if you're moving, but no, still, no, I, I suspect not. <laughs>
But yeah, this week we're going to take a look at uh, an article from Helen Locke and yourself that stemmed from an interesting stat that you found whilst looking through the DfE's latest initial teacher training census data. That is that the number of postgraduate initial teacher training applicants declaring that they belong to a minority ethnic group has risen from 14 to 21% over the last six years, which obviously sounds great. So I'm sure you were curious to get the bigger picture. Where did you, where did you go from there? Yeah, that's right. I spotted that stat. Actually, it was probably back in like December time. Um, and I thought it was very interesting and, and wanted to know, yeah, like why was that? Is that, is that because of you know, strong initiatives by the sector to, to improve diversity of new teachers? Is it just, does, there, does no one really know why it's happened, but everyone's sort of happy to go, oh, look, that's good. And so I asked Helen, who I was a freelancer, who I found who seemed to have done good work in these kind of areas before, to look into it. And she went and spoke to a variety of people, to academics, to teacher training institutions, universities, um, you know, teachers of themselves of from, you know, minority ethnic backgrounds, see what they thought. And the message came back, a bit of everything, really. I think it's clear there have been efforts to improve this in the sector. I think people are more aware of the need to be more open to a diverse range of apl applicants. Um, and that involves everything from, you know, unconscious bias training for your admission staff to how you portray yourself with your, you know, your literature, how you ensure that you offer a course and, and placements in schools that are going to work for all trainees. And, you know, those schools are aware that different trainees have different needs. Um, and the piece sort of delves into that in more detail. But what came back was when Helen sent me her piece, which was very interesting. I sort of looked at it and thought, this is, this is interesting. It, it almost demands more, though. We need to go and talk to more people, find out even more, put even more around it. So that's why I did, hence the sort of two bylines, because I went and then spoke to more teacher training institutions, even more. And, and more sort of uh, frontline practitioners to just get those extra insights to really sort of flesh it out. So that we're really looking at that three-stage thing of, okay, we're getting increased diversity of ITT. That's a good thing. It's still lots to be done though, but it's a good going in the right direction. Um, but how do we then ensure we keep those teachers when they join the profession? Because there's big issues there about, you know, they can encounter racism, um, unconscious bias again. You know, some of those like subtle microaggressions, it's called, or you know, micro, I guess you might put micro-racism. Um, where it's not it's not explicit kind of you know stuff you'd see in the, in the, in the 70s say but it's still happening you know why is that and that itself feeds into why then and then are there not as many people in leadership positions from diverse backgrounds because the ratio between the number in the population number in the sector is very low in leadership and that's something that even Zahawi himself has said he wants to see improved so a lot there but you can see it has a through line through the whole sector where this matters. And it's not just an ITT stat, it actually has impact with it. So we spoke to a lot of people about that and sort of some of the findings that we then put forward in this article. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned Nadim Zawi there. Ha has there been kind of a significant paradigm shift from the government, from, from initial teacher training institution that, that has brought this improvement about? Well, this, this is the thing. I, I, I don't think it's possible to say there's been a single thing that happened to cause the rise it seems to me like it's a bit of a confluence of things which is no, no bad thing you know um it's you know the, the dfe has done their own um what they call their recruitment and retention strategy that they said they made diversity a feature of that are you trying to appeal to a more diverse range of teachers but like i said we've heard from you know people like teach first from manchester Metro metropolitan university from nasbit from the national modern languages skit or initial teacher training um that they've all they've all been looking at this area. They've all been aware that they're lacking, and they've all and you know some of them some of them shared stats with me about how where they've come from to where they are now. You know they went from um, 
someone called Anne-Marie Bahe, who's, I hope I pronounced her name correctly, who's the director of ITT at the Surrey South Farnham skit at the South Farnham Educational Trust. Um, she told me that their, a few years ago, their BAME recruitment was just 5 or 6% of their whole intake, which is very low nationally. But the most recent data they've got for the current cohort coming in is 13%. So, you know, they, they've doubled theirs, which, you know, 13%, Again, against the national average, it's possibly sort of still slightly below, I think, I'm right in saying. But it shows, doesn't it, that in that time period, they, that kind of almost matches that trend of that, that number percentage points increase. So we can see that through these initiatives to do that, to appeal through literature, through marketing, through, you know, who you go out and do outreach with. People are having this impact. And, and I'm always wary of putting too much stock in data. But of course, you know, you have to sometimes draw a line and say, well, look, we're going to use this data to make a point. And the government's own ITT data I'm sure there are caveats around how it was modelled over the last seven years, but it seems to me there's a, there's a growth there. That's a sort of fundamentally it's positive. So let's build, let's see where we, we go from there. Yeah, so there is this positive growth, but I think as you, you found kind of in the, over the course of your research for this article, um, there is an issue though retaining these teachers, correct? I think Gronya has been on the podcast before and she's kind of talked about this, this kind of idea of teacher training as as a pipeline and the government kind of trying to tighten up the the areas of the pipeline where there are leaks are the government doing enough at the moment to retain BAME teachers i think it's difficult to sort of ascribe a, a direct issue to government on this i think i think teacher retention is a is a broad issue anyway and it comes down to lots of things about you know workload and and money and we saw a report just this week from the Gatsby Foundation which kind of showed that if you pay teachers more money, at least in certain subjects, they will stay in the profession for longer. So, you know, is it as simple as that? But I think obviously with, with BAME teachers, you do get those additional problems and around, you know, the fact that they're already a minority in the cohort. So if they drop out, the impact is probably more, you know, more keenly felt. Um, and, and we did see, you know, so we had some research from academics um, who, who looked at the issue in sort of in London, where you get more ethnic minority teachers in London and so it's, it's hard to explain. And it was, it's written out in a piece in more, in more detail, but fundamentally it's almost like the more, although it looks like the retention is higher, you're losing more of them from the inner cities. So it's like, and, and the inner city schools sort of in places like London are some of the hardest ones to start your career in because like, you know, Ofsted reports and, and the sort of challenging nature of the, the cohorts. And this is, a, you know, explained in the, in the sort of the academic research. This isn't, this isn't me just being anecdotal. Um, it means you're kind of already putting this cohort into the, some of the toughest settings. So the dropout is potentially probably higher than it would be if they were more spread out around the country into a different mix of settings. So that's not necessarily a good thing. Um, so again, it's very complicated. It's, it's like the article is, is long. It's, it's, a, it's a good 4,000 words. So it would take, you know, it takes sort of five, 10 minutes to read it in, in detail. But I, I hope anyone listening to this is interested in this would do that because it is, it is a sort of an, a knotty problem. You cannot just sort of ascribe it to, oh, it's, this is the problem or that's the problem. It, it's a bit of everything. But I think there are positives here, which is what I found sort of intriguing is that this is not a problem without some solutions. It is sort of, it feels like there is a sort of a movement in the right direction on this. Yeah, like you said, uh, I I read through the whole article and it it really does take uh, reading through it to build that picture up. As, as, As you said, every issue feels interconnected and multifaceted. Mm. There's these these different issues that that feed into every step of that, and it's about representation across those steps, seeing yourself represented in in those leadership positions. It's about where you're placed. It's it's about all these factors that that build together to to create 
that picture mm. of teacher retention as a whole. You mentioned leadership, and I think that's a good point I'll mention as well briefly, which I thought was very interesting, was that, like you said, leadership and, and the lack there. And, and some of these sort of, we spoke to some, both Helen and I spoke to some of these uh, people who run like mentorship schemes for BAME, BAME teachers. They themselves have reached leadership and are sort of passing that, that insight on to help because in a way because they kind of feel like well, if, if we don't do it no one else will you know there isn't enough from the and they sort of does there was one element where the government did get criticized was they remove funding from their diversity and equality hubs in 2020 um which you know doesn't sort of play into the narrative of helping to, to improve things in that area but they sort of say well look if we don't do it no one else will but then they also made the point that it's like i think it's, this was dr malcolm cox he said it's almost like we're having to solve the racism that we are affected by, you know, it's, it affects us and we have to solve it. Um, and, and, you know, it's a lot of work to do. And it, it's a very good point, isn't it? It's great. You think, oh, all these mentorship programs and we, we help each other. But it's like, yeah, but you shouldn't have to be doing that necessarily. The system should be set up to be more welcoming and have these clearer pathways. And he said, you know, there needs to be, and I think it was um, someone called um, Gary Mullings at Viner's school says, you know, the sector needs to get better maybe at having clearer career paths for, for all teachers. But I think he's saying particularly for, for AME teachers, it can be a bit too freeform and can mean you end up getting pigeonholed into certain areas of, of what you're good at that sort of takes you away from leadership. Um, so again, lots to unpack. None, none of it's simple. None of this is sort of to say this is what they said and that was it. It was more like that was one point, as, as you sort of described, it's one point of a sort of multifaceted thing. But I think it's a very important conversation to have. And I was very appreci- you know, appreciate Helen's work and everyone who spoke to her. And then I was able to subsequently take it forward. So I think it really led to a big piece. And you can see we've talked about it here quite a lot of detail because there was so much to get through. So I really urge anyone who's listening to this who hasn't read the piece to to seek it out and read it. And, and then obviously let us know your thoughts on Twitter or, or please share around your networks because I think it's something that hopefully will resonate and lead to some good discussions. Absolutely. Well, thank you for joining me again this week, Dan. And as always, thank you for listening. If you want any more detail on any of the articles we've discussed today, they can be found on our website, test.com forward slash magazine. And we'll be back next week for more education news and analysis.